Let's pray. Father, your blood, your love, your mercy, your grace, how much more do you give us? And Lord, we just thank you so much that we can come with open hearts, with joyful hearts, but sometimes we come with a cluttered mind. Lord, open up our spirit, open up our eyes, open up our minds as our pastor who preaches your word, your truth rightly, that goes all the way through our souls. Lord, help us to realize how much you care for us, how much you do for us, how much we need to do for you in telling the world about your love, your grace, your mercy. Father, our pastor needs your strength, helping get through the message with a clear mind, clear message, and dividing right into our souls. Thank you so much for this day, for this church, for these people that help us come with joyful hearts. In Jesus' name I pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And every once in a while, what I like us to do as a congregation is uh, memorize a Bible verse. And I thought it would be very good for us today to take just a minute and to memorize Proverbs chapter 12, verse 7. It is an Old Testament reminder of the New Testament truth that our Lord Jesus is teaching as he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount. Today is a landmark day for us. We are concluding the Sermon on the Mount. In the weeks ahead, we will be looking at the uh, early, early months and weeks into the early part of our Lord's ministry as he begins uh, doing signs and wonders almost immediately. But as you well know, where we've been in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, everyone's been sitting still. We've been on the mountainside, and our Lord has been teaching us And it has been significant, it has been uh, weighty, and it has been life-impacting. And he's drawing it all to a close. And let's just memorize for our introduction today, to get our thoughts in the right direction, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 7. Say that with me, Proverbs 12, 7. Proverbs 12, 7. It's just one sentence, and and it has a comma break. Let's learn it in two parts. Here's the first part. This is the ESV. The wicked are overthrown and are no more. Let me say that again, then you say it with me. The wicked are overthrown and are no more. Let's say that together. The wicked are overthrown and are no more. Now, not all of them all at the same time. But every once in a while you see it, don't you? You see the wages of sin catch up with a wicked one. Uh, Maybe uh, sometimes a wicked leader crawling in a culvert while young soldiers chase him down or a wicked rule leader who's been uh, horrible hanging from the end of a rope and uh, it happens. Eventually, though, all the wicked will be overthrown. It's a scary thought. The wicked are overthrown and they are no more. All right. The second part of the verse is, but the house of the righteous will stand. Say that with me. But the house of the righteous will stand. So it's a picture of the wicked man's house collapsing while the righteous righteous man's house stands. So here's the whole verse. Listen to it and then we'll say it together. Proverbs 12, 7. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Can we say that together a couple times? Proverbs 12, 7. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. 
Proverbs 12, 7. One more time. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Well, I don't know if that's the actual verse. Jesus would have known that verse, um, whether or not that was what was in his mind as he was teaching. But as we turn to Matthew chapter 7, and our text for today is the concluding paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount. We know it as uh, the, the parable of the, the houses built on the rock and the sand. Um, we've had a little song about it. We had a message about it. This is where we started the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you were here. Um, it's been a while. I don't know how long. Um, but we began the Sermon on the Mount by going to the closing paragraph and reminding ourselves that the final call of this message was going to be a call of obedience and activity on our part. It was not a message just to listen to and say, wow, that was really good. It was a message to build into our lives. You'll remember um, the last couple of weeks we've been looking at the entire conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And our Lord, using an interesting teaching technique, is using pairs, two of everything. And the reason is He wants us to contrast the two, to compare and to contrast. And remember, He begins with the two roads, the two ways, the two gates, the two broad way and the narrow way. In fact, let's just back up to where the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount begins. And as we go through, remind yourselves of the, the pairs that we've looked at, the, the couplets, the comparison and the contrasting, the two roads, the two gates, the two kinds of trees, the two kinds of men, the two kinds of foundations, the two kinds of footer stone, rock footer, foundation, sand. It begins in verse 13, and as we've talked about, this is the beginning of his conclusion, and today we are going to pick up the conclusion of the conclusion. Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus said, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus is telling us straight up, it's hard to live for Jesus in this world. Beware of false prophets. Um, let, me re let me say, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. If the tree is alive, it will bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's the one who will enter. On that day, many will say to me, Many there, a reminder of the many who are on the broad road to destruction. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, iniquity, you sinner. And now our text for today, verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The storm does come. It will come. It's inevitable. And notice that it was a great fall. The imploding of the foolish man's house. It's an interesting passage of Scripture. And before we examine these verses a little bit, and then in in a little bit of an extended conclusion today, I want us to do something together. I want us to walk up the street to my neighbor's house. He's a wise man. I want us to together go visit the wise man's house. Let's see what it's like over there at his house. Um, But before we do that, I want to answer a question that you might have uh, had been left unanswered last week. Um, because it was really an interesting passage last week. We were talking about these false prophets, these spiritual leaders that Jesus was warning us about that would be calling us to come along the, the broad way with them. And that it's very uncomfortable to stay with the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ and to be a narrow Christian. And, and it's easy for these These who come in looking like shepherds, wearing sheep's clothing, so that they have the appearance of legitimate shepherds who want a flock to follow them. And in fact, we learned in Acts chapter 20, in that very similar passage, that Paul warned us that they would come from within and that what they were really all about was making disciples for themselves and a following for themselves. So they look good, they sound good, but we find out that they're teaching false doctrines, they're misleading people, they create division, and ultimately, Paul called them in in Acts 20, savage wolves. Jesus called them wolves in sheep's clothing. It's a powerful and profound word picture there. And you'll notice that we're to examine their fruit, we find out that though they talk the talk, they don't really walk the walk, and they fall apart, and the fruit that they bear ultimately is bad fruit, and we find out that the reason the fruit is bad is because the tree was bad, and good fruit can't grow on a bad tree, and, and good fruit can only grow on good trees, and it's inevitable. So eventually they will be found out when the fruit comes out, and we find out that it's bad fruit, we find out that it's all over, and we've seen it happen, haven't we? We've seen the ministries go bankrupt. And we've seen, we've seen that the, the horror stories and the skeletons come out of the closet and we find out that there's rampant sexual immorality behind the scenes and there's abuse of power and there's financial abuse and the whole thing implodes and some of these false prophets who were wolves in sheep's clothing, their ministries now are vast parking lots and buildings falling down and weeds and trees growing up through the cracks in the blacktop have they've fallen down or they've had to sell off all their assets because of their, their bad judgment and their ministries have fallen apart. Well, one of the things that's interesting in this passage though is that when they stand in judgment before our Lord Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate judge, they keep on talking. If you stop and think about these false prophets, that's really what they're good at. They talk, 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 and they lead people astray, and they talk people out of their money, and they talk people into following them. When, when a little voice on the inside is telling them, oh, don't do that, that doesn't sound right. I've never really heard the Word of God presented quite like that. And then and they talk you into it. And what happens is, on the Day of Judgment, notice in... Uh, In verse 22, it says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you sinner, you worker of iniquity. When your life is examined, we find out that it's, it's rotten to the core and it's characterized by sinful behavior. In your speech, in your attitudes, in the way you treat people, you're unloving, you're, all, you're selfish, and their lives implode. But the question is, that we didn't answer last week, that I thought might be important, is what about this that they're saying to him, but we did these miracles, we preached in your name, we saw results. What, what is that? How can they say that? Well, option number one is that they think they're going to talk their way past Jesus. They've been talking their way into people's living rooms all their lives. They've been talking people out of their money all their lives. They've been weaseling their way into ministries and tearing them down with their words. They think they can just keep talking. So one option would be, and the text doesn't tell us, that they think, I'm just going to talk my way through the pearly gates, you know, as a matter of speaking. Another option is, is that as they ministered, and you can kind of picture some, um, and their ministries have fallen apart or they were found out to be Uh, bearers of bad fruit. But there was a time when they did talk about Jesus and they, they did open the scriptures and they did some things that had positive effects. And we know that the word of God does not return void. One of the differences is in their argument, they're saying, we did this. Uh, Another option is, is that there was some positive results in their ministries when the word of God was opened. You cannot stop the Word of God from doing its work. A third option, and one that I'm more inclined to, I, I stand more with one and three here of our options, is what, what are they saying? Lord, Lord, what happens? Well, one of the things that we know is that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan doesn't show up with the pitchfork and the horns and the, and the pointed tail thing. Satan shows up as an angel of light, trying to deceive people like he did Eve, drawing them away from their pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And the best counterfeit is the one that looks the most like the authentic thing, right? And so I think that maybe some of what happened in their ministries where it looked like things were really happening, um, some of that was generated even by the power of Satan. And it takes discernment to see this. So I think that's the answer. I think you have three options. It's, it's possible that they were trying to talk their way th- past Christ. Um, it's possible that God honored His Word regardless of how that Word was presented. It's possible that Satan... It's possible that's a little bit of everything. So I just thought I would comment on that, that that might be a little bit helpful, and you can kind of ponder that and uh, know, though, that the ultimate consequence is horrible... They have never been identified with Christ. They've never been adopted into the family. They have never acknowledged the substitutionary death of Christ. They have never come, as the Sermon on the Mount begins, in brokenness and humility. They have always been characterized by pride and arrogance. And as we commented, often even the way they look and speak gives them away. It's a proud arrogance. It's never a broken humility, often. And then our text today. I want you to notice, as Jesus concludes now, that he talks um, specifically to a broad group. Number one, I want you to see that the, the message, the scope of the message is for everyone. Notice what he says, verse 24. Everyone then who hears my word. So number one, the first thing we observe in our Lord's final paragraph as he wraps up the message is, that the, is about the message, the scope of the message is for everyone. 
You can't say this isn't for me. He said it's for everyone. Number two, I want you to see that the theme of his message is obedience. The theme of this message is obedience. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Listen, obedience is an action word. All right, and so our Lord hasn't just been talking to hear himself talk. He hasn't been talking just to make the crowd think that he really knows a lot or that he's really a smart guy. And you know, you can equate this on the home front. And you say, hey, uh, to, your, to your kid, hey, sonny or girly, you know, little girl. I'm afraid to say a name at my house or I'll have to pay five bucks more. Um, I've been working those off weed whacking in his business. But uh, so, hey, sonny. Uh, you new people, I have a deal that if I use my son from the pulpit, I have to pay him $5. Um, so you just say, hey, will you empty the trash? And, and they say, they say, um, sure, I'll empty the trash. No problem. Or they might say, oh, why do I have to empty the trash? I don't know what it sounds like at your house. Might be, yes, ma'am, I'll empty the trash. But they keep sitting there and they're, they're still watching their rifleman reruns and they, and they got their pods in the ear and they're there and then it's time to leave and we leave and then we come back and the trash is still there. So, you didn't empty the trash. Oh yeah, but I will empty the trash. And then we go to bed, we brush our teeth, the lights are off and we get up the next morning, the trash is still there. Did they obey? No. Did they intend to obey? That's questionable. We don't know. You can say whatever you want to say. Words are just words. But obedience has to do with action. It has to do with carrying out what's been said. And so that's the context of the message here. Our Lord is telling us, look, he who not just hears these words, James reminds us of the danger of being one who just hears the word and is not a doer of the word, right? And, and you just look in the mirror, but you don't pay attention to it. And you go off and you don't make any changes. You cut yourself shaving or, you know, your tie's crooked or whatever, but you don't do anything about it. It's a hearer of the word, but he doesn't let the word change him. The idea of the Sermon on the Mount, that it, it, it is a theme of obedience. And the idea is it elevates the priority of obedience. You're supposed to do this. Thirdly, I want you to see that it is a message that is about measurable results. It is a message for everyone. The theme of the message is obedience. It's an action word. You've got to do it now. So you have to understand it. That's what we've been trying to do for all these weeks. Thirdly, the message is about measurable results. I want you to see that when the storm comes, the wise man who built his house on the rock had measurable results from his obedience, and the foolish man who built his house on the sand, he could measure the results as well of his disobedience. He did not implement the word. So the storm will come. The rain falls, the wind blows, and the guy who built his house on the rock, man, he's still there. The rock doesn't move. He's looking down into the valley and he sees that there was a broad, wide road that led down to the beachfront of the river where the sand is flat, where the digging is easy and where the foolish man went and built his house. But he forgot to think that the rains would come and the floods would come and the wind would blow. And now his house is no longer in that cool spot along the river where it was comfortable, where the digging was easy. His house is wrapped up around a, a bridge buttress two miles downstream. And it's shattered. And remember, we noted in the story that Jesus said, and great will be the fall. 
So you can get along for a while, but ultimately there's a great fall coming. So the results are absolutely measurable. There is a distinction here that is to be seen in the, and a contrast to be made. Fourthly, that is the point, that there is a comparison and a contrast. Two men, two houses, two kinds of foundations. Both of them, by the way, probably look pretty similar at first. But it was when the test of the storm comes that the difference is seen. Fifthly, I want you to see that this message is a warning. It's a warning passage. The storm will come, and if your house is built on the sand... Look at verse 27. When the rain falls and the floods come, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. It's a warning. The obvious conclusion to the reader, to the listener of the Sermon on the Mount is, I don't want to build on the sand. I want to be, a, I want to be one who builds on solid rock. It's interesting that the word for the wise man here, it, it really comes from a, a source of a word that means sensible. You could legitimately translate the word there, the sensible man. I don't know if you grew up in a Christian home. I did. I grew up in a, in a, a Christ-centered, uh, ministry-centered home. My father was a pastor of a little Bible church in the Midwest. And our whole world revolved around church and the Word of God and ministry and Bible camp. And, and my dad was like really a narrow guy. Really narrow. My dad was so narrow that I, in third grade, had to take a note to school to stay home from the field trip when the whole class went to see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Since we didn't go to movies. We just narrow people, man. And I used to think my dad didn't quite get everything. I, I didn't really think, I thought probably I was missing out on an awful lot. And do you know that the older I get, for one thing, the more I become Eugene, uh, that's my dad, but the other thing is, uh, I find that my father was very sensible. Almost everything that he taught me, I'm finding it was absolutely right. Van, if you do that, then this could happen. Oh, Dad, it's not going to happen to me. And now I deal with all the people who said, it ain't going to happen to me. Well, yes, it is going to happen to you. And my dad kept me from it on the narrow way. And following Christ and walking in obedience. And I find that the blessings of obedience, it turns out that it's, it's a very common sense, sensible thing to obey. And, and sometimes I can think of my buddies that I grew up with and they were on the broad road. And now they're in their 50s heading fast to fall over the cliff of destruction. And their bills aren't paid. And their homes leak. And their marriages aren't sound. And they don't even know the names of all their children. And their lives are just profoundly falling apart. And really, the big storms haven't even hit yet. And I think, how sensible to just build on the rock. It really makes sense. And that's the idea here. It's a warning passage. And so I want you to see that There's a contrast here. It, it is a sensible thing to build wisely. By the way, I think it's worth commenting too before we go visit the wise man down the street that everyone, Jesus said, who hears these words of mine, what's he talking about? 
You can take your pen and write in your Bible chapters 5, 6, and 7. He's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. He's concluding his message, and when he says, if you hear these words of mine and then you do them, you will build your house on the rock. So obeying these words, chapters 5, 6, and 7, should be a huge part of every Christian's life as we live out Christ's teaching. By the way, as you read your New Testament, and you read John's epistles, and you read Peter's epistles, and you read Paul's epistles, guess what you find? You find nothing other than the paraphrase, sometimes even almost a direct quote, and the reiteration of everything that's taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You want to know where Paul got Colossians chapter 4? You want to know where Paul got Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6? Almost all of that stuff, you can find the, the, the foundation of it in the very teachings of Christ. Peter does the same thing. With these repeated emphasis. And so there it is. There's two kinds of people. There's a contrast. You can build your house on the rock. That means taking chapters 5, 6, and 7, the words of our Lord Jesus, and not just hearing them, but doing them, and that that is a very, very sensible thing. It's a message for everyone. The theme is obedience. It's about measurable results. It clearly presents a contrast, and it is a warning And part of the warning is this as well. I do believe there is an application here for the storms of life. And they come, don't they? And when we walk with Christ, and people who've built on the rock and lived in obedience to the Word of God, you will find that they will weather the storms of life in a manner that is superior to those who have not built on the rock. But I noticed that in most of the commentaries, you know what they've concluded, and it's based on the context here. Let your eyes go back to chapter 7, and notice, uh, for example, verse 19 of chapter 7. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And notice uh, uh, verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you workers of lawlessness. That's speaking about a coming judgment. They also, in the commentaries, uh, pointed something out that I thought was, was pretty valuable. And it was that in, in Jeremiah and in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, specifically, uh, repeatedly, those prophets, when warning Israel of coming judgment, Judah and Israel of coming judgment, do you know how they often phrase themselves? They talked about a storm coming. They talked about the wind of God's judgment. They talked about the storming of God's judgment as though it were like bad weather storm. A tornado is going to come sweeping in, a hurricane storm. And so one of the points that is made about this passage is that not only does, is building on the rock sensible for everyday living, but building on the rock is so important for the ultimate storm, and that is... An eschatological storm, we might say, a future storm that is coming, the judgment that is coming in the future where we will stand before God. Give an answer. Those of us who are robed in the righteousness of Christ have nothing to fear. We've built on the rock. The ultimate rock is whom? Jesus Christ is our rock, isn't he? And he's our fortress and he's our strength. And if I've built on Jesus Christ, my rock then let any storm in the future of any kind of judgment stand before any kind of judge in the future, and I am secure because I'm on the rock. And so God looks at me and says, why should I let you into my heaven? I'm built on the rock, buddy. Look what I'm standing on. I'm standing on the rock, Jesus. I'm even wearing his robes, his robes of righteousness. He came and substituted in on the cross in my place. 
I didn't have to die for my own sin. I have no idea how that happened other than the fact that I know it's true and I know that I hate my sinfulness and I am so broken over that. And I came in humility to the cross one day and I received the free gift of God's salvation that he did for me in Christ because of his great love and kindness for me that I would not have to pay the penalty for my own sin but that Jesus would pay the penalty for me. And then Jesus becomes my righteousness. He becomes my life. I am identified with him in his death, his burial, his resurrection. When God looks at me, he sees the credit account of Christ and all of his righteousness credited to my account. And he sees me standing on the rock of Jesus. And I can pass through any storm. Let's go down the street. I thought that as we concluded today for the final minutes, turn to chapter 5. Let's just kind of see what building on the rock looks like. I want to introduce you to my neighbor. Uh, I haven't really been able to figure him out. He's really a different guy. Um, He lives over there. I watched him build his house. When they built his house, they drilled rock. His house is built on rock. I watched. And there's something different about that guy. Now, the guy up the street, he built on a soft spot. It was an old landfill, and they just built it fast. And that guy, I kind of worry about that guy. This guy over, you know, when I'm mowing my lawn and sometimes when I'm out on my deck, I I watch this guy. And, you know, one time I got to know him a little bit. I'm starting to get to know him better. Um, He's really a sensible guy. And he's just different. He's different than everybody else on our block. And we were at a barbecue in his backyard one time. And I was talking to him about the house that he built on the rock. And I was pretty impressed with his house. And he, you know, he got really quiet. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that his eyes even teared up a little bit. And he said, he said, Jenk, I want to tell you, I didn't always live on the rock. I used to be, when I was in college, man, you wouldn't even recognize what I am today. And I did, th- let me tell I hurt people. And I hurt my parents. And you know what, really? And, and he started to tear up and he said, I left a wake of ruined relationships and destruction in my past. And one day, I became so broken. I want to tell you, I watched this guy. He's characterized by humility. There is nothing arrogant about him. He comes in meekness and humility, and he's poor in spirit. Have you ever heard that phrase, poor in spirit? That's that's that neighbor on the rock. He's not proud of the things he did that... But man, there's something about him now. He, he's restorative and he's encouraging. And I watch him because I think he's got it together. Uh, the guy up there, he continues to leave a wake of brokenness in his rearview mirror. This guy, this guy is characterized by humility. It's noticeable, a noticeable humility. I want to tell you something else about my neighbor. I've watched him. He is kind to people who despitefully use him. Have you ever heard anything like that? People who treat him evil, he's good to them. How, where did he get that? Well, we got a neighbor over here. He's friends with, he hangs out at that guy that built on the landfill. They hang out, his property line goes back here and his property line meets and that guy is so mean. He keeps encroaching, he throws trash over. And if I were him, I'd go bust, I'd rip his face off. I would bust on that guy and he goes over and he picks up the trash 
And I even see him try to wave to that guy. And I, I mean, the guy's not a wimp. I'm sure he can take that guy. He doesn't call the cops on him. He just keeps picking up the trash. He keeps just taking care of things. It's unbelievable. And this guy over here, he's no good to anybody. Nobody in the neighborhood likes this guy. They don't like his kids. His kids threw rocks through this guy's window. And he's never mean to those kids. And one time I saw the neighbor over here on the landfill. His, his truck hood was up. It was a Chevy. And his truck hood was up. And it wasn't running right. And I saw my neighbor over here. And he got in his Ford truck. And he drove over here. <laughs> and he drove over there. And this guy never helps anybody. I remember one time this guy's kids were at the bus stop. This guy on the rock, his kids were at the bus stop and the guy on the landfill went by in his Chevy truck and he went purposely through a mud hole and splashed his kids. You splash my kids with mud on purpose, I'll splash you. I don't get this guy. He's kind. And he, he goes over and he jump starts that guy's Chevy. I would never connect my Ford with a Chevy. It's such an unequal yoke. And he did it. He did it. And I don't know. I don't know. Um, there's just, I see him shovel snow. There's a widow lady on the other side of him. He always takes care of her. I don't know. There's something noticeable about his humility. There is something about an ongoing generosity in his life. It's like he's a light that's on a stand in this neighborhood. And it's like everybody in this neighborhood sees his good works. We really don't know what to make of it. Uh, he's really an interesting guy. I, I tell you, he's very stable emotionally. I told you about that guy throwing trash. One time that guy yelled at his kids. And this guy's dog got over there and, and he hit it with a stick. And he was out there and he ran over and he got his dog and... They started to get in each other's face and I saw him come back. He backed off. He calmed the whole thing down. He's really emotionally stable. I'm not that stable. I'll tell you that. I told you that he has a past, I think. I've been on my deck before and I've watched over. I really like to watch this guy. Don't tell anybody, but he's who I really wish I was like. I sometimes go to their parties and, and they're cool, but I really think that guy is who I want to be like. And I watched him and I know they've been married at least 20 years and I saw him kiss his wife and hug her on the deck. Uh, and I think he really loves his wife. He never tells jokes about his wife. He never tells anybody else about his old lady and stuff like that. You can tell that he, I saw him go, I saw him open the car door for his wife. What's that all about? She an opener? What is she, lame? Don't you have hands? I don't know what it is. I do know that the other neighbor has a pool and, and no fence with boards and his college student sons often bring their girlfriends over there and I notice uh, some of the rest of the neighbor men really try to notice. I notice he never, he tries to not notice. I can tell. I think he's guarding his eyes for his wife. I think there's something about a purity of heart in this guy. I think, that, I think that he realizes that sometimes to think something is almost as bad as doing it. 
Have you ever heard that before? That if you think it, it's even worse than, or you're just as guilty? It's there, isn't it? Do you want to be like that guy? He's a good neighbor. It goes on and on. Why don't you make your way through the rest of the passage? And why don't you figure out what all that this neighbor is about? It's a noticeable humility, an ongoing generosity, an an emotional stability, an enviable purity, a real integrity, a consistent spirituality. He goes to church with his Bible in his hand, and he lives it. He's the only guy I ever saw that went to church that's not a hypocrite. Stuff is not his priority. I've seen him give stuff away, good stuff. He's really free from anxiety. I see him watching birds and feeding birds a lot. And the guy's really calm. No duplicity. He's a servant to our community. But I will tell you, I think he believes every word in the Bible is true and that Jesus is the only way. He has a very narrow spirituality. I really want to be like him. How about you? Let's pray. Father, would you drive these realities home in us? that we would go from here and live out the word. Lord, help us to build on the solid rock. Help us to never be embarrassed to be narrow Christians, following a narrow Christ on the narrow way, in such contrast with the broad road that's leading to destruction all around us. Father, would you just help us make application throughout the week and to ponder these things and to grow in grace. Thank you for the substitutionary death of Christ and that by grace through faith in Christ alone we can be saved from from building on the sand and we can build on our rock, Jesus. Encourage our hearts, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.